object. I don't know. We're about to find out. Mm. I don't see an object, but we're not there yet. So we're always fun. Almost, we almost hit like a 6x6 six six in the road earlier. That was good to avoid. I feel like that could have done some damage. 6x6 six six what? Oh. There was a chunk of like one and a half foot of 6x6. Six six oh. Just board. hanging out. I got yeah. elk on the brain, 6x6. Six six. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're in Illinois. <laughs> this is the wrong kind of 6x6 six six to take out. All of the wrong kind. Can't believe you made me stop at that gas station again. Oh, but we officially, ladies and gentlemen, I know this is the moment you have all been waiting for. We have a Moo card. We have secured one. We passed all the credit checks, which involve none, and we have a Moo card. So, yes, there will be a photo, and it will likely be the episode photo. Yeah, I don't know about that. I was going to just go back and post it on the other one. So I can confirm, though, that they have the worst coffee on the planet. I thought it was Seattle's best coffee was the worst coffee because it's just horrible. But I, whatever they have, Java Wave, I think it says on this, this cup. This is Portage's at best. This is the worst coffee I've ever had. Worst. And it's, it was one of those fresh grinder things. It should be it's good. Probably old beans. You probably chose the one that nobody gets. Like you, lo- you chose Low Test. And I got to imagine Low Test is likely like high octane in gas. Nobody uses it. I usually like light roast coffee because there's more caffeine in it. Is it extra light? No, it didn't say extra. It just, it's crap. So it doesn't have any flavor. So you wanted it darker. No, I just wanted it different. <laughs> I just wanted, <laughs> just it, wanted better. it better. I just wanted it better. <laughs> but I did get a size venti. I thought that was like a Starbucks thing. <laughs> it just makes me think of that movie with some dude in... I wish I could recall it. I can see the scene. He's in Starbucks with his, like, fiancé or girlfriend or something. It's the one with the slap in the bass. And he's like, Venti, why you got to have all these words? Venti is the only way to say large wrong in, like, or I don't remember what he said. Like, it's five. And really, it's large or something like that. I don't remember. I, don't I destroyed know that analogy. But yep. we'll watch it when we get to a hotel room at some point. I won't. It was, um, you don't know slap in the bass? Yeah, I just that I don't movie. know. I don't. Paul I Rudd. don't know what movie it's from. Yeah, somebody will comment on which movie it is, and we'll remember by the time we post it. But yeah, um, yeah. At any rate, so I wanted to chit chat. Well, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, I've noticed lately. I've been getting a lot of questions and just chatting with people, and this is probably. I'm gonna before we sell what it is. I'm going to say this is likely the most asked question from new shooters when they first start getting into this. Besides, I want to shoot. Oh, I want to shoot long range. The next thing, what is the next thing that you, if you were back in your very first days of shooting, what is the next thing you would start researching, looking into, and or you would want to buy? Like you try to, you almost make your decision about this before you ever make any other decisions Right or wrong, whether or not it's the right thing to do, I don't think it's the right thing to do. But I feel like you're trying to entrap me for some reason. No, but not. I mean, if I didn't I know what I know now, like, what did I do? I started looking up calibers, probably. Okay. Calibers, and then I was looking up what kind of guns I could just buy. Like, yep. Okay. Who would give me a guarantee on a, on a sub-half-minute rifle? All right, so second thing. <laughs> because okay. I think that's fair. It's that valid. I was thinking, like, you have a rifle, and you just now want to start shooting longer range. Okay. And to me, it's optics. Yeah. Almost. And this is where I feel a lot of people stall out real hard, like running your truck down a two-track and all of a sudden you hit a big sand pit and you just get stuck in this 
wiffle waffle back and forth about this optic is that, this optic is this, and but this one's this much, and you you do this weird dance of I have a budget of five hundred dollars, and then that creeps up to around a thousand, and then or seven hundred, and then you end up saying, whoa, but this one's great at fifteen hundred. Before you know it, you're looking at like the highest of high ends, the lowest of low ends. You end up settling somewhere in the middle, but it usually pushes your initial budget quite a bit, and then you're you may or may not be happy with it. You might be happy with it initially, but then as you grow into it, you end up less happy. Um, but the reason I wanted to talk about optics is we haven't truly discussed optics directly through much, I think, of any of the episodes to this point. Um, and I wanted to just go through some of the ways in which, you know, your choice in optic plus how you use an optic matters. And it can really affect your performance not at a, um, I got some road work and this guy really wants to merge late. Not in a sense that like, hey, this match you're shooting 50th and the next match you're placing top five. That's usually not the case. Um, but I want to talk to it in relation to dope, your ability to resolve things downrange, and what you should be looking for in an optic and how you start to make walk through the decision matrix and both you and I personally, like what we have gone through in optics in order to get, to land on what we're using now and why we think it benefits us and what we actually gain from it. Yeah. So um, first and foremost, I, maybe price. Do you think price has any bearing whatsoever on the type of optic you should be buying? Other Not, for, not your budget, just price. For me, um, at this point, no. And it wasn't a factor for me when I first started. I had enough disposable income to buy whatever I wanted. I just, for me, much higher than, much higher of a priority than price was reliability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's coming from you as an engineer, though. You're, you're so versed in reliability being the most important attribute because you recognize how much things that fail just aren't worth their cost. No, well, they have the such most, a high cost. It's the most complicated mechanical system in the rifle yeah. you know and it's it's a lot of voodoo to a lot of people of how it works and and how intricate it is and how robust inside the the erector system design is and everything about an optic is kind of like you can't really see how it works you know mm-hmm. <laughs> from the outside looking in yeah and i mean i've seen some of those cutaways with you know between loopholes and some night forces and other optic manufacturers have these cutaways where they cut a scope in half with a water jet and all the pieces are you know laid back in place perfectly and you get to take a look at the internals and very complex it, it's far more it's, complex than you would imagine yeah and it's so complicated that you almost can't appreciate how complicated it is because it's infinitely more complicated than even your ability to take in all the details of what's happening mm-hmm. and every one of those has a tolerance every single part every single piece how they fit together they all have tolerances so designing an optic and finding an optic that has a perfectly engineered system that has as few drawbacks for the type of shooting that you're doing and it performs all of the performance metrics that you need to execute whatever type of shots you're trying to take so um is a really it's a really tall order if i'm being honest um i think there's that's the reason why you see certain scopes commanding the prices that they do this, and having lasted the test of time, and those brands are still around, right? Between Loophole, Night Force, uh, even Tangent, Zico, some of them are newer, but they do have a very high price point. But not all of them 
uh, Burris, um, not all of them have always had a track record for success. And I think part of the reason I wanted to talk about it in this context is, you know, if you think of a scope, you can't just, I don't think you can think of just a brand and go, oh, that brand makes awesome scopes, for instance. There are a couple exceptions where I think they, they've done a really good job. But it, at least from what I've gathered, um, companies that come on the, the scene right away and have this really you know killer scope have done it one of two ways. One, the person who designed it likely came from another optics company and started another company. I think that was the case in several different manufacturers. Two, the, um, they have another company overseas who is already designed an optic and they say, hey, here's a specification. We want this magnification range, this size objective, this main tube, yada, yada. And all said and done, they come back with some designs and they go, yeah, we have that product. We've made some tweaks and here's your, your scope. Um, I, I'm not sure of it, but I think I think that was kind of similar to how the Brownells um, scopes came about. They, they had them contracted overseas. But there's a lot of other ones. Like I think it's um, Arkin and the mid low end tiers like those as far as i understand it and i I really want to learn more about this so i can be more knowledgeable but um it does seem like if you look at a lot of the low end the budget scopes like the let's say sub eight hundred dollars sub a thousand dollar scopes you see a lot of the same design features or physically the same shapes for turrets the uh, maybe they have a different color but they have the same turret as another brand's scope that's a pretty good indicator that those parts are just being put together at some plant overseas and it wasn't a unique design for that company but more so a rebrand of some product yeah i don't want to speak out of turn because this is something i know nothing about but yeah i can make the same inferences that you are right now based on looking at the um, diameters the tapers the the turrets and stuff like that and think that a lot of those low low end sub one thousand dollar scopes are coming out of the same factories with just slight tweaks that's i think it's safe to say but man I, i just i don't know yeah, I've I've talked with a lot of people who do mention that, and they you know that there's a couple of main companies overseas between Japan and China and Taiwan and some other places Philippines. That, in the Philippines that make that make optics and they have their own you know design in house at that plant, and they have a liaison and they'll design something and it just gets produced, put in a box, and there's their new scope, right? Um, I'm, but I want to talk about those first because. I notice a lot of newer shooters, and it's not right or wrong. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. A new shooter has expectations that when they start wanting to be a precision rifle style shooter or they want to shoot more precisely, that they get a better scope. They get a, you know, maybe a better gun, but they want to put a better optic on it so that they can see more and shoot smaller groups. Well, the only way that occurs is if the scope itself is not consistent tracking, but that it can physically keep the reticle in the exact same point in space inside of that system every single time it fires through recoil. And I think that's actually a really big ask of some of the you know mid to low end scopes that they just can't take the abuse of in and out of trucks, in cars, bouncing around in rifle and beds of trucks, um, you know, dialing or getting just vibration shocks, um, vibration and shock impacts cause things to move around and i can't i don't want to separate this reason i wanted to start with the first or with this low end section is because if you were in the category of having a mid to low end scope let's say sub one thousand dollars and it's not from a really reputable manufacturer 
there is a chance that there's a higher than usual chance that there's a mechanical there can be mechanical issues with those types of scopes because they're maybe not designed as with the best quality components or they have looser tolerances on how you know the objective lenses are secured in place or the reticle is etched in but it's not etched very well or true and I mean we've gotten you know luckily enough you know we're lucky to have seen some of the behind the scenes and development of different products and it's eye-opening when you start to see the type of work the time frame and the details that have to be worked through just to get a prototype product out Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it consistently blows my mind at how much work it takes how many things that the consumers will never know had to be solved before they ever get the product that they quote bought there were probably 10 to 15, 20 different versions of that thing that all failed to meet the expectations or the performance requirements prior to it hitting the market. And I think it's important that when you factor in what optics you're going to buy, you also take into account that it's it's a product that the company wants to stand behind because it's the best they can put out. So, you know, if, if you're going with some optic, it doesn't matter who it is. If it's their low end within their line, it probably is good, but you, you know that if they have something higher end that they offer, that it's more likely than not that their higher end product has some better features, better components, and is designed to be more robust. That's more likely than the other way around. They wouldn't generally say, hey, here's $2,000 for this scope, but the $500 one is all around better than this more expensive model. So if, if you're looking at a scope, my personally, I feel like the budget budget game is probably the hardest game to play when you're trying to get into precision rifle series if you buy something that's super budget oriented it's hard to separate whether the scope isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing the rifle isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing or you're not supposed to be doing what it's supposed to be doing when we talk about precision reliability and consistency do you agree with that sure i think it's a hard space to understand it's a hard space to really see who's telling you the the true story you know yeah. but there's lots of there's lots of optics companies in that price range that people don't complain about so yeah but i have zero experience in that in yeah. that realm so i think if i mean what i'm trying to do is give some advice on let's say we were in the sub thousand dollar market for a scope the companies that i would trust to provide a product that's going to do what it says it's capable of are the largest companies available. Meaning, if you see a company that's, I don't know, ABC Optics company comes out with this new feature-busting scope, but they this is their first foray into scopes, you know, I wouldn't want to go that route personally because they might not have the experience in the scope game to know what products work, what design constraints or design features to stay away from or to add at that price point to give you what you're actually trying to to accomplish. But so, you've already said those companies aren't acting in isolation. They're using correct. suppliers that have experience. So why wouldn't why because it's why I, can't we think that they can leverage that experience and somehow someday come out with something that's like ultra competitive not in saying that price that they range? wouldn't but like I mean I use an example. I don't want to be a guinea pig yeah. but what what if what if one that does happen that's the allure I think to people. Yeah, then that's I know, you know, I'm going to just use this example. It's not to knock their product. I think what they did was pretty interesting and in how they changed the market um arc and optics 
came out with a 34 millimeter 56 uh, 34 millimeter main tube 56 millimeter objective uh like a 6 to 24 and it had more or less all the bells and whistles that you would expect it was first focal plane with a zero stop and all these features and it was like 650 dollars two three years ago i mean and it's still i think at that same price now or very close to it it was virtually unobtainium because it was so popular that you could quote get all of the same features as a two to three four thousand dollar rifle scope for six hundred dollars and ultimately what that did was it did it was wildly successful on its pre-sales and the first couple shipments it forced other companies to quickly follow suit and create products that also helped in that same price range, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars more, but they were vying for the same type of customer. So it, it helped the market grow at the, call it the low end, feature for feature, you gain more for your dollars because of a company like Arkin. However, the very same scope, I know I've had a couple of people who have bought those and over the last few years, they've had issues with, with some of the early runs and like any product, it's it can fail. Well, there were some small growing pains, and it had an issue with some erectin, erector systems binding um, and you know locking up effectively. And that was a bad thing, but they resolved it, and I think they got them a new scope right away. So good on them for doing so. Um, but I bring that up because what that, what that will ultimately do is delay and elongate the, the time that it takes you to learn, plus add frustration and things that... If I'm new to this sport and I'm trying to spend, you know, 90% of my budget, I end up at 110%. And then later on, my scope goes down and I have to wait three months or four months to get a new scope replaced because it doesn't work right. That's that's a lot of practice, time, money invested that you, you're like basically beholden to this piece of equipment that if we're being candid and you start shooting even a one day or like a couple of one days um, or two days of a year. So like, let's say you shoot three two-day matches a year. Those matches are 300 bucks, give or take, this uh, says, for the uh, entrance fee. This says photo enforced, and you're going 15 over. Do you it think that's real? It says that, but I don't think it's real. Okay. Everybody okay, else is going, like, I'm not going super fast over the speed limit. Yeah, so I'm following flow. <laughs> I just wanted to point it out in case you were deep in thought. So I, I see where I can't, I, I don't know, maybe I don't see where you're going with this, but I guess my, my two cents on companies that stand by their word as far as warranty that's great but man yep. i just don't care about warranties exactly. i don't want the product to fail and that's why i ended up on with loophole and I, we're not trying to sell those scopes but i'm just saying my personal experience with where i went was i was shooting much more expensive scope and i ended up coming back to loop and it's not that that scope wasn't going to get fixed or whatever but then i just lost confidence that that exactly. i only had it for you know a couple thousand rounds recoil on a six BRA and, and and I needed to get it worked on and maybe that's an unfair assessment from my perspective but I just have zero tolerance for that and I'm not very hard on my equipment so I expected it to not not have an issue yeah and that's that's exactly where I was going with this when you buy something budget you're almost willing to accept any or you have to be willing in my opinion to accept that there might be a mechanical failure that you're paying down the price point so to speak and if it happens, you're also willing to accept the downtime that comes with it as a opportunity cost of not having spent, say, $1,000 more than what you pay. You paid $500. Had you spent $1,500, maybe this other scope has a demonstrable track record of almost no failures. Whereas the one you bought, you know, is kind of tr- untried, untrue, untested. And you don't know, well, if it costs you 
attendance of one match, say a pro match, where you had a hotel, drive time, and all of that, plus the ammo and practice, that's $1,000. Was it worth saving 1000 on the scope in order to miss an opportunity to shoot another match? Maybe to some people. Maybe. So I mean, some, some people think on the, along the lines of that, pri- that scope is priced and has the features such that I can get two for one and I can have a backup rifle and yeah. I keep my backup rifle with me. I think it's a personal decision. So that brings us to the next point, which is if you have an optic, the, the only purpose of an optic is to be able to point it at something, engage it, and hit it. And if it's further than your zero range, you have to either dial it or hold over in order to make it a necessary adjustment to hit the target. If your scope, and this is where I think all scopes, you can't, this is the Reagan trust but verify, you have to make sure your scope, doesn't matter how much it costs, how little it costs, whether it's free and a buddy gave you the best scope on the planet just as a loner, you need to make sure you understand how to use it and that it does exactly what you think it does. Um, what I mean by that is tracking. I have fielded more calls, texts, and emails in the last oh, 30 to 60 days than, I'm, than I really expected to regarding scope reliability, scope tracking, and ballistic solutions that are just, hey, this isn't lining up. What's happening? And they end up, you know, I go through the same litmus tests and, you know, by a by all the questions that I'd ask, like, man, the only thing this leaves is either your chrono is broken or your scope is broken or something's loose. Those are the only three options left. And because it was like a systemic offset that occurs at some range, all of a sudden they're hitting really low kind of randomly. I'm like, well, you charge the cases. Yeah. You've chronoed them. Yeah. But they're all exactly the same speed. And then I go chrono and it's still the same speed, but I'm hitting four or five tenths low and, and it comes, comes and goes intermittently. Well, when I hear that, they, you know, most often, if that shooter hasn't done a tall target test, and if you've ever found yourself in that position, like, you have to do it, and you have to figure out, as soon as you see it, you have to try to identify and isolate it, and go, is this the equipment, or is this me? And if you if you avoid it, and you don't know how to replicate it, um, expect to have the same failure mode in the future. And I, I bring this up because when you're truing your data... If your scope is tracking wrong, it looks like your BC is wrong. It looks like your velocity is wrong. It looks like your dope is wrong. When in fact, it is simply your ruler is not doing what your ruler is supposed to be doing. You're telling it to go up X amount and it's not going X amount. Or it's not going up consistently that amount. Both are equally dangerous and bad if they're not doing it consistently. How many, how many people... We're heading to a pro match right now. How many people at this pro match... Um, do you think have actually checked their tracking? Uh, I would guess less than 5%. That's probably a safe assessment. Five to 10% it'd be at the most. It'd be an interesting poll. I mean, do you check every scope? Yes. Okay. Every, do you check twi- every scope multiple, multiple scope. times per year? Multiple times okay. a year, yeah. At How least twice it? a year. So I actually check it two ways. One, with a heavy fixture, I have a more or less the ability to put a scope on a Picatinny rail that's on a 70-plus pound like vice, uh, point it at a target and do a physical tracking test from zero up every five mils through as high as the scope will go. And I just, I visually check. I'm also, you know, you have to, in order to do this, you have to go look up how to do a tall target test, but you know, an exact range at that range, you find how much each click value should be. Mills work out pretty easy. It's 36 inches at 100 yards to get through 10 mils. 
So you put up a target that allows you to go through at least that, if not more. In my case, I use like a 60 inch target and I'll track from the bottom to the top of the target with known lines in between, just making sure it does where it's supposed to, it is where it's supposed to be perfectly plumb and within one tenth of where it's supposed to be on that target. Important, important facts about this test is that you need to know the exact range of target. Egg, not, and I don't mean just like, oh, it's a hundred yards and you're plus or minus one or two. It has to, to the tenth of a yard is important in this test. Parallax needs to be perfect. Yes, flawlessly perfect. So those are the two most important variables. And then when you have it go all the way up and come all the way back down, it should come back to the same point as well. It should. So you can confirm it. And I have a similar fixture I made, and I don't know, I might have got the idea from you, but it's got two Picatinny rails on it, and I can have one scope mounted next to the other, and the one scope doesn't move and it verifies that the fixture hasn't moved and then the other scope goes up and down and comes back to zero and then you can double check that the fixture hasn't moved and then you can use the other scope to check the next scope so that's exactly what i do i do it on every scope if there's any tracking um error in my opinion it's okay as long as it's consistently tracking as far as a percentage bold or or short per per click because you can go into the kestrel and it's into the um into the gun profile and you scroll down and you go into the elevation tab and then inside the elevation tab you can have a site scale correction factor site scale factor yep so if your scope is tracking um let's just say for example 101 percent you know at 10 inches if you have or sorry at 100 yards if you have 36 inch ruler and it's tracking an extra tenth that's one percent right yes exactly it's it's it is, but you have to, the correction factor itself is different than that. No, How no, much it's no. tracking, yes, you want to know that if it's 100, if we say it's tracking 102% of target or something along those lines, that means you are adding two clicks per hundred of additional elevation that you otherwise wouldn't normally. It's not necessarily in clicks, though. It's just the amount of angular offset that it's, it's given you. And, yeah, like you said, and this is a really important point, so I want to make sure I stress this so that you've already said it and I repeat it, the... It does not matter if your scope tracks perfect, i.e. 100%. 99, 100, 101, 105, they're all equally good. Uh, also as long as it does it every as time. As long as it does it every <laughs> single time. It cannot go 101% through a given range and then jump to 105%, then back to 101%. Or, you know, and that's an extreme example. Most of the companies out there I've seen are probably good for at least those tolerances, if not better, like less than 1%. Yeah, I've seen some really cheap scopes like sub $500 that track 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- But then the more I sit there and dial back and forth and up and down and left <laughs> and right, I can get it to where they don't come back to the same spot exactly every time. Yes. Um, but, but you can get them to show, you know, 100% tracking. Yeah. And that's an important point. As long as they're doing with what you ask them to do consistently, we are at least at a base starting point that'll allow us to send precise rounds down range and have a re- reasonable measure of repeatability. That's important. And if you don't know what that is, uh, meaning how repeatable it is, the tracking test that I do, I do six to eight times on a static test up and down, and I write down the results of each one so that I have an average to make sure I can say, okay, my average error was the same at each one. That's probably just my ability to resolve or Mirage or whatever it would be on the target. If it changes in a couple points and it's randomly different, I'm now going to repeat it even in another six to eight. These take just a couple of seconds per, you know, dial it, look, dial it, look, keep going. 
And I'd write all those down and I take the average to make sure I have good values across the board. And if they all line up, hey, um, you know, if they're all within a half a percent of each other, I feel like I've got a pretty good result. Yeah, that's good enough. Um, the other thing you can do in that test at the same time is check your reticle subtensions yes. and make sure that they match. Honestly, um, I think it'd be worse if the reticle, you know, tracked 100% and to scale and the actual elevation tracked a different amount but if I they have, both if they both match then you're good because you can just go to that site scale factor and adjust it mm-hmm. i have absolutely yep. seen that exact scenario um the nice thing about that it, well it is a really hard one to resolve because if you have a mismatch where uh, the reticle is say perfect and the dials are not you can only true one of them Yep. So you have to pick one, and it would, you know, if it's if it was me, I would probably pick the dial because we dial more often than we don't. Me too. But if you use your reticle for holdovers frequently and you're shooting extended ranges, um, it's it's unlikely, and this is the other reason why I think the dial is the more, the turret is the more appropriate one to true. If you dial to some number and you have to hold over to some other target further than that, it's a smaller it's ratio. It's a smaller amount of error yeah. that's built in. Right, exactly. Unless you have to keep it on zero and hold seven mils or ten mils, which is pretty unlikely. That's a eight hundred to thousand yard plus shot. Um, yeah, that could start to cost you points, but it's pretty unlikely at that point. So, um, my opinion would be true your turret, whatever it dials to. That's how you use your sight scale factor, and just know that your reticle is close, and it's likely good enough for what we're doing um, in PRS anyway. Yeah. Um. So besides tracking and repeatability how that affects your ability to true the next one would be optics resolution because and i say resolution i'm using that word clarity the optical qualities of that system this is the context that i see most people who are newer to the sport talking about i have most people who have a little experience they talk about getting better glass it's good getting glass, better this. but oh, it's, it's good, good glass. glass yeah and i think what they mean is potentially a little different in most cases than what it sounds like. I've seen, I have definitely seen where people say, oh, it's got German glass or this glass. And I hear some people saying like, yo, but glass is glass is glass. I really don't know which one's right. I I kind of tend to agree that, you know, high quality glass, like physically, is the glass stock good or bad? There's probably a difference. Um, So there's, there's definitely ways that you can measure it. And I know that Aaron Hip did a whole study with a bunch of different optics yeah he did and he had strict criteria um i didn't watch it just because i'm not going to change i'm i'm for me it's right reliability over optical mm-hmm. greatness but i want to use that term lightly um because i want to know what qualities you look for in optic in optical measurements like what do you consider to be good glass? I have some ideas myself. I'm kind of curious what you think is good, quote-unquote, good glass, or what makes a certain piece of glass better than another, regardless of yeah. where it was made. Like, what's your criteria? When you say glass, I'm going to say, when we say good glass, I'm going to make sure we say what the, the optical image you yes. see. What? Yeah, not what's in it, not the physical glass itself, but the Correct. image I see. Um, to me, one of the first things is color representation accuracy, i.e. Why do you I, care about that? Um it's because of a contrast, and I'm gonna. I have to. It's a longer way of saying a couple of different points. When I look down range, I see something. I see a series of colors and uh, shades of green, browns, yellows, whatever. And if I pick out that there's a a target reference point, it's this red 
ish tree next to some green trees with a little patch of brown gra- glass and I grass and I go into my scope and my optic has a let's say a blue tint and now that red no longer looks like red the two browns that are dissimilar when I look through them with my eye or with my binos suddenly look either the same or a completely different hue I might not think I'm looking at the, the correct target reference point and immediately pass over it multiple times this happened to me with some other products and I'm I was really blown away when I realized that it was the the tinting or the way that the color representation came through that I was having a hard time resolving certain details around targets and features and branches or, or other things. It was really difficult. I've never had that happen to me. I've never used colors or shades as a target reference point, though, so maybe, maybe yeah. there's a difference I'll there. use it, like, if I'm looking... Like if we're looking at a skyline and there's a bunch of trees, I first find a big shape. Yeah. Then I find the one shape at the corner of this. There's a red bush or something unique, and I found where I couldn't resolve that through my scope. Also, contrast. Like this is a weird one because this is actually going to be counterintuitive to what most people say. I hear, oh, high contrast is the right way to go. So I experienced with um, some of my older scopes. When I would look with the sun behind a berm or downrange of me looking into a berm, there's my objective had so much light coming into it, it had such high light transmission and high contrast. The berm apparent physically looked black, and the rest of the items around it were all good. Everything outside of the berm shadow was yeah, super no bright, bueno. and it looked pitch black. I could see nothing. I saw a target, but I could never see dirt move. I couldn't see. I could barely resolve dust. And this is a really high-end optic. And uh, come to find out, I was looking through some other optics. And I know that the couple that I look through theoretically have, quote, lower light transmission. And this got me to thinking, if you wear sunglasses while you're out in a day, your eyes feel pretty comfortable. Now take them off for a split second. Instantly it feels bright. and You can feel your, your eyes just go, whoa, that's bright. Something's very similar is happening through your scope. Right? You're focusing all of the light that's captured onto your eye. And if you are in a well-lit area, your pupil is going to shrink down to try to not capture as much light. And now once you look through the scope, all of a sudden you have sort of this opposite problem. You, you're trying to shrink light down. It puts a ton of light back in your eye and either has to close down more or open up to kind of capture the image. I would much rather have that eye open up a little bit more so I can kind of naturally pick out more detail by letting in less of the high intensity light and a decent amount of the low intensity light, if that makes sense. I don't it, know how to describe that. It one does, and, and one of the things people always say is, oh, this is this is brighter glass. So I think what you're saying is you don't necessarily care how bright the glass is. I really don't. Okay. I just want it to be I feel like we run. Colors. I yeah. feel like we run one of the brighter glasses on the market, though. <laughs> Bright in terms of color, though. But it says two parts because there's color and saturation. Is it pop? Does it have like a color pop? Yeah, I mean, I get good colors, but no more so. Like I've seen some scopes that if you look at objects, you go, "Oh, that looks good," with your naked eye. And then you look through the scope and you, "Oh my gosh!" And it's overwhelmingly bright and colorful and vivid. Yeah. I don't want that. I want it to feel natural and i still want to have high resolution and and be able to have good detail but i want something that feels very natural to my eye i guess that's the best it's really these are really hard things to describe because i'm sure there are optical terms that help define these i just don't know which specific term meets which specific criteria even when we use something like 
contrast versus uh, you know resolution, um, they I think they're hand I think they go hand in hand a little bit. Like if you had really low contrast, you wouldn't necessarily be able to resolve an edge. If you have high resolution, you can pick out an edge or pick out a detail, but you can still have high resolution with low contrast. I don't know. I, it, this is the weird part about images and stuff that I, I wish I knew a little bit more about, but it got me interested in the subject and I'll probably go do some research on it. Yeah, I would say if I've, I'm far less concerned about image than I am about the actual mechanics of the scope operating properly. Correct. So that's, I think it's a good good point that we started on the erector design and function and, and all that stuff in the turrets. Um, but I'm, I'm just concerned about being able to identify the edges of the target really well. And I think that comes with a little bit of a few factors. The, the glass coatings, the glass quality, the sensitivity of the parallax of the um, of the, the movable objective mm-hmm. lens inside there. Um, all those things add up to can you see uh, the edges of the target really well? And there's certain scenarios where you're just not you're not going to have an easy time seeing it. And those very very subtle differences are what separate. So if you have a scenario where you're having a hard time resolving the edge. Get behind somebody else's scope. Try everybody else's on the line and see if there's one that stands out. And I've done that many times. Yep. And I feel like you and I, uh, whether it was luck, chance, choice, whatever, we have like the best compromise of all those scenarios. I really love the position I'm in right now with the optic I'm using. And I'm not saying that there's not more expensive optics out there that have a similar result, but I feel like we are not held back in any oh, regard no. as far as the optical image quality goes. No, and, and this kind of brings us to you know one of the last components, which or actually there's two components we still haven't talked about. Um, but the next necessary evil, there's optical quality. How good is it to look through? You can't res- completely devol- dissolve and diverge optical quality from the reticle because they can detract from one another. I think it's done really well. A good reticle will enhance the optical qualities of a scope and take the best features of it and do well. There are, in my opinion, reticles that do a disservice to the scope because they're so difficult to look through and so distracting that you you miss small, fine details of things that would otherwise be apparent. For instance, you're, you're shooting at a target at moderately long range, you don't catch trace, you don't see splash, and so you're staring around the target looking for a piece of dirt falling off a berm, maybe some grass to flicker in a, in a way that you wouldn't expect if it was just normal motion. Mm-hmm. If you have a bunch of dots and a bunch of you know crosshairs and really thick reticles or things that are obtrusive, you might miss that small characteristic of flicker or dirt or something in just long enough that when you catch it out of your peripheral vision, you move down to where it was, it's already moving into another area. You're kind of jumping from, let's call it dot to dot or feature to feature in the reticle because your eye would be drawn to it as opposed to the thing that's moving. And you might just miss it because it lasts a quarter of a second. That's something I've found frequently with several other reticles. Um, So one of the, if not the most important, well, second most important, your dial obviously your reticle tracking and or your tracking system is the most important in reliability to me the second most important feature is the reticle and how well how understandable is it is it easy to use easy to interpret and is it unobtrusive so that you get only the information you need and it's not you're not searching for the right hold 
constantly and getting lost within the different holds that you have available to you. Um, to me, that's an overlooked aspect, and that is a really difficult thing to define for any one person because you need some time behind a reticle to know whether another reticle would suit you better or not. So it's kind of a weird chicken or the egg. Yeah, I I agree with that. There's You have to know your reticle. You have to know it without even looking at it, and if you don't, then you have to look at it before the stage. It's pretty simple. If you're going to do a holdover stage, I don't read my reticle to hold over when I'm on the clock. I've already got the image of mm-hmm. where I'm going to hold in the reticle in my mind, and sometimes, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'll sketch that section of the reticle on my dope card and uh it's just something that i don't want to read the reticle i don't want to read the numbers i don't want to count lines and that's the great thing about the the pr2 reticle is there's less lines so if you are counting and you do get a little confused you still you know you can find it real quick and this is another another place i suggest just like the caliber don't go chasing calibers don't go chasing uh reticles and, and scope options like there's there's 10 scopes in this game that'll get the job done as long as they're tracking good mm-hmm. and just pick one and, and go for it hopefully it's one that is gives you a fighting chance from the beginning but don't change a bunch right at the beginning until you get used to it and f- feel like there's a, a deficiency that's why you want to change something along those lines and don't go chasing waterfalls <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't help but say it i'm sorry i know it was, i was you waiting were for it um, um, so the other thing so we're talking about reticles and stuff like that and everybody knows we shoot the the Lupo Mark V HD with the PR2 reticle, and that's what we're talking about. That specific reticle, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of trends going to less of a tree, if not deleting a tree, than yeah. there, than you would have seen two years ago. So that's interesting to me, and I agree with it because you want to see more, and you can't see past a reticle like the the Horus or or any of those super busy reticles. Um, it's harder to see past it, is what you're trying to say, because your eye yeah. has to. You have to kind of like defocus your eye on the reticle, which is in focus if your if your diopter is set properly. It's in focus, so you have to defocus your eye to see past it, and you have to focus on the back the background. So it's like you're changing your eye from that like near from that far sighted to that near sighted condition mm-hmm. in 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 the course of milliseconds when that bullet is leaving and going down the the barrel. Yeah. Um, the other question I want to ask you is sunshade or no sunshade? Always a sunshade for oh, me. Oh, man. Really? Always. Okay. You know that. Yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah. Um, um, I think it's underlooked. I, I think it's overlooked, why. underlooked, whatever. I think that it I think it looks silly personally to have that gigantic thing in front of your scope, but I really feel like it helps funnel the, the light straight into the optic and don't, you don't get I a lot get of errant rays. Errant. Yeah, exactly. I get less errant light. Less blooming, I, less, less intensity. Yep. There's overall... 100% benefit and very small. I can't think of downsides. It's I only when you're at really, really low light, it can be a problem. But we don't generally shoot super low light. It's not and just the other, that. There is one other physical issue. When yes. you head to certain certain props, it can be more cumbersome to go in and out of certain props. But it just makes me just nervous. Just take it off. I mean, at that point, Good if that's going to happen, I take it off. If I think there's going to be an issue with... Can I get it in, or would I be more stable if I pulled it off? Could I brace it up against the front edge of a barricade? Um, yeah, it's, it's have, rare. Every every third, fourth match, I have to pull it off for a stage, more or less. That's have you it. ever checked your point of impact? With and without it? I yeah, haven't. You should. I, I should, and it's on my to-do list, other than it happens so infrequently, I almost don't care about those four points. As long as the target's big. Yeah, more often than not, they're not 
they're not small at that point. They're, yeah, good point. I mean, again, uh, 10% of our targets are really small. So I'd have to have every fourth match. I literally have taken it off twice this year. So I'm, and I'm halfway, well, more than halfway through the season. So eight matches in. Um, in those four times or th- tw- twice that I've had to take it off, I, what are the odds that those 20 shots require really small that really small move, movements uh, movements that a shift would cause me off target really low um, if that's an issue that I'm I need to be a better shooter uh, but I do but I feel, need to check it I do feel like my zero is more consistent I when th- it's cloudy versus sunny versus all that stuff I just it makes me I feel good to mean. leave it on there so, I, I don't have any empirical evidence I just feel like I it does. think there's a reason I don't want to theorize on it though publicly until I can flesh this out more I know we've uh, yeah, I'll well, leave it we at both that. Leave our there's some reasons, it. yeah. Um, so that said, there's one thing we have talked about that I want to re- go back to, and then there's another subject I want to come right back to and recap on. Um, on reticle and reticle, let's call it busyness, there's an easy test that I think people miss when they're thinking of a reticle. Look at something anywhere. Just stand and look at something. Put your hand in front of your face. Just literally wave your face back and forth in front of your your, your eye. If you wave your hand in front of your face, it's doing it fast enough. You can still see through it, and you actually can still see items. But for a split second, you see your hand, and you're distracted by it. Your reticle will be the exact same way when you fire your round. It will be perfectly motionless, and you see everything as a still shot. Bang! And as soon as that happens, the shot goes off. Your reticle will slide up. Your target will stay, will move, apparently will move around in your reticle, probably to the bottom of the reticle. And you now have to reacquire the target. And at least in my mind, when I'm firing shots, I am doing, I start with my focus on the target. I move to my reticle to confirm I have my hold. And then I move back to a focus on the target, staring exclusively in the area, let's call it a three foot by three foot area, including and around the target. So it's like a one and a half foot left, right, up and down. So that I'm not hard pinpointing I know where I want to hit on the target, but I'm, I'm hyper-focused on that. But I'm allowing my focus to also drift to the areas around the target so that I can catch detail. As soon as the shot breaks, I expect the target to move, but my job, my only job with my eye and my brain is to track the target in the reticle while as soon as the muzzle blast clears and it starts moving the reticle, I want to have hyper-focus on the reticle, on the target. And just let the reticle move out of the way. Yeah, it's going to go somewhere. You said track the target in the reticle, but I think what you mean is like track the target, track the through target, the reticle. It, yeah, through the reticle, and ignore, ignore the reticle unless yes. you need to use it to measure afterwards. Yes, and I'll come back to it. So I'm constantly bouncing my focus back and forth between reticle target, hard focus target, bang, back to t- stay on target, then back to reticle to measure, back to target to engage, and on and back and forth. But you need to be able to see through your reticle while it's moving and not be distracted so the thinner your reticle the easier it is to see those details now we're talking when some people say they can't see trace um i had a couple of people who just said i saw trace for the first time and is the reason it's so difficult to see at times is because there's other stuff moving trace is a moving object and your reticle obscures some of that while it's in motion and generally speaking everything when you break a shot if you end up with your reticle let's call it your center of your reticle one to two mils above a target you've done a pretty good job at managing recoil not perfect but pretty good if it's especially if it's straight up well trace happens 
on a medium to long shot, like a medium range shot, five, four, five, six hundred yards in that sort of two to three mil range right as well. So now the, the cluttered part of your reticle is right where the trace is supposed to be. And you are going to have a hard time seeing it until you can decipher your reticle and you know exactly what your reticle should look like in that area. And you, your brain can realize there's stuff moving up there that shouldn't be. And I, I think you see where I'm going with this. It's a really hard thing to quantify without having someone as rock solid as they can be once they see it moving. And then you have to practice shooting with more reticle motion to see if you can still pick up trace through the reticle. It's way harder. Mm-hmm. The more motion you have in your reticle, the harder it is to capture not just trace, but impacts, dust, debris, and dirt. So first and foremost, if you want to see more impacts and you want to use your optic to its fullest to really vet whether you have a good optic, you need to stop your rifle from moving as much as it is. The less the movement, the more you'll see. Yeah, and just go with a complete floating dot reticle with no other information yeah. on it. Yeah. And you'll probably see more is what you're trying to say. Yeah, Nobody has that, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. if we could do that, and then I think it'd be cool if we could turn a tree on and off, like those uh, Swaro uh, yeah, cool. spotting scope. So your illumination would turn on a reticle that you wouldn't normally have there. Mm-hmm. And other than that, you would just maybe have, like, a center floating dot with, like, one and a half mils of wind on either side of it. Yeah. That'd be pretty sweet. That would be kind of neat. <laughs> and then we could move on the mover. We could light up a specific mover area. Yeah. Well, that um, would increase the complexity of the optic and make it more expensive as well. Because that's one of the things I like about the Mark V. Is it's, like, it's inexpensive, it's bare, relatively yeah, it's speaking. It's bare bones. It's what you need and nothing that you don't. It's, it's correct. It's awesome. I like that it doesn't have the illumination. It's just less to, so, less to deal with. On that point, this brings us to the last point, which isn't really related to anything uh, cost-wise or other. This actually has to do with using your optic and things that can make your optic seem worse than it really is. And there's one specific thing I'm thinking of. If you don't have your diopter set properly, there are actually more downsides to that than more p- and parallax than people realize. At least mm-hmm. in my experience, I found out the hard way. I went through multiple scopes and I found out my eye is not physically capable of staying focused on the target and the reticle at the same time. And come to find out it was because of a diopter issue. I did not know how to actually set... Di- I mean, keep in mind... I had read on this multiple times. I had done tons of scopes. I thought I understood how to set diopter. And this is after having thought I understood it, followed by having thought I understood it, followed by having to learn it. So multiple iterations of thinking I knew how to set diopter better the next time. Now around five, I'm like, oh my gosh. I finally learned how to set diopter. And it it kind of clicked. My eyes saw, I guess, let me describe some of the symptoms that I think, at least, of what you have when you have a poor diopter setting. You'll tend to squint more with your eyes, your left eye specifically. You'll try to close your left eye so that your right eye is also easy. It's the only eye you're looking through. It's a symptom of having a poor diopter because it's not in focus. It's also a dominance of issue with your eyes. Um, But that's part one. Part two, the longer you look through the scope the more you'll notice things go out of focus and it's harder and harder to keep them in focus. Again, a sign of a poor diopter or a poor parallax setting. Poor diopter is also difficult because if you have your parallax set to some number that approximates focus, that can be off while your diopter is set just not correct and it'll look like it's perfectly clear. But the longer you sit on your glass, 
all of a sudden it goes out of focus and you can't understand why. And that is, again, a symptom of a bad diopter. Yeah, there's two more that I can think of, um, and you might even yeah. be going there. But Go um, these are the worst case scenarios of a poor diopter setting. Um, blurred or double vision. Had that happen. <laughs> so you know that was the reason I ended up comparing all yeah. the brands for and, that exact reason. And headaches. I mean, you can also, get headaches. Um, and you don't notice them right away. But by the 75% of the days through and you start having these headaches, you think it's... You know, muzzle blast, recoil, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, you can you can have that happen, and it could mess could mess with your parallax, which we should talk about proper parallax because it's part of an optical system. And I think there's probably fifty percent of the people say that they understand it, but they don't. I I think it's higher than that. Okay, if I'm okay. being perfectly okay. honest. Good. Because I spent I don't want to offend anyone. I know, but I spent five, <laughs> six, eight years shooting. Eight years, and only in the last two years do I feel that I truly, one I can 100% confidently say my diopter is or is not exactly where it needs to be now. And it took me eight years to get there with thousands, well, tens said, of thousands of rounds down the road. You're saying diopter, I said parallax. So I think I we should talk about both. both of them. Yeah, so both. Before we leave that, um, I, I will say that I think a poor, a very poor diopter setting could also mess with your parallax and the yes. ability for you to be parallax free and clear at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would agree with that. And it's because let's say your diopter's off. Like if anybody's played with your diopter, and I know if you go from max to max, somewhere it's out of focus, somewhere else it's out of focus. And in between it's Goldilocks zone, it's perfectly in focus. Well, it's only in focus if you're there and your parallax is there. Yeah. But you also have to have your eyes relaxed. So before we go into setting parallax, I'm going to talk about how I think I'm going to try my best to describe what I do to set diopter. And it actually involves trying a set of binos because I it's challenge, far easier to do with binos. I challenge you to do it in 10 words or less. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Go for it. You can, you can okay. use as many words. I'll unlimited. I'll unlimited. I'm going to, I think in order to learn it, I feel like I'm clipping. Um, You're good. In order to learn it, you should take a pair of binos. 15 power if you've got them, ideally, because anything smaller than that, uh, it's a little hard to to teach this. It's not sensitive enough. Yeah, you need more focus because they're very sensitive to focus. Uh, roll your roll your binos out of focus, and then roll them in focus to where they look perfect, and then roll them halfway between, where they're almost in focus but definitely not not out of focus, not in focus, somewhere right in between, and you have to like squint and you can see perfectly. Just stare and look at nothing. And if you, like, try not to look at any specific item in that. And if you stare at that long enough and you just sit, sit, and sit, you're going to feel your eyes go, try to relax your eyes. Go to, like, soft eyes, relaxed eyes, whatever you want to think of. And your everything in your image should now go blurry. It should go literally out of focus. When that happens, keep, allow your eyes to stay unfocused and roll your binoculars into focus without doing anything. Don't look at anything. I can't stress this enough. You can't look at any specific detail. You just have to like eyes gloss over. You roll it and all of a sudden there is a magic point at which your binos bring everything perfectly into focus and you are 100% crisp. Um, And now when you do that, that's A, how you find focus. And I do the same thing with parallax. So I'm going to now use that to piggyback on diopter. So this was all how to learn how to set diopter. I had to start with learning how to set focus and focus and then parallax and parallax back to diopter. This is well backwards, but this is exactly how I figured it out. 
Once you've figured that out and you now know what to look for with a relaxed eye and you can feel your eyes are relaxed and everything's in focus, you simply close the close your left eye or have it blinded by something so that when you're looking at nothing in the reticle, you change your diopter in and out, just looking across the reticle, and it it becomes perfectly sharp. You can only do this for a few seconds at a time. If, if you look at anything in your reticle, all of a sudden your eye will naturally distort your natural lens shape and it will sharpen or relax or contract the muscles in your eye to make your eyes see the reticle in focus, even though you're not. It's and this not is optimal, just, but it will make it happen. It will work. And this is the problem. Just like NPA, we have talked about this now a couple times, natural point of aim occurs when you can do nothing with your body and your rifle and it stays perfectly on the point of aim. A proper diopter setting is almost exactly like that for your eyes. You need your eye muscles to be in their most relaxed state so that they're not overworking and they're not just, they're completely relaxed and they're just hanging out and they could stay there forever and it just, it's in focus. If you fight your diopter or fight your focus and fight your parallax to make them all kind of work in a mishmash of just a little bit off on each one, you will have eye fatigue. It'll be harder to spot shots. It's easier to get blurry reticles while the gun is moving. It's easier to see blurry targets when you accidentally focus on the reticle and vice versa. So this is, I, I don't know how else to describe this very well. This is arguably the hardest so when thing you're to set, translate when you're to setting your diopter do you set your parallax first to make sure you're parallax free and then you go and set I your do. diopter I okay. do but I only do it because there's no other it's chicken or the egg you yeah, can't no. have one be off and the other so I constantly had to learn to play with both of them I'd start with my diopter to get it reasonably close then I would go to parallax and see if I could get it close then I would check again with diopter after parallax is completely parallax free and then check to make sure, oh, it's clearer again. Yeah. Okay, and then go back to parallax and check it. Oh, there's a little movement. Move it. Okay, it's a little bit clearer, but it's still got a little blurriness. Boom, all of a sudden it becomes, you work back and forth trying to minimize the error on one and the other at the same time in alternating steps. So by, I was yeah. just going to say, I'm going to try to describe the, the relaxed eye one more time just in case because I was listening to your description and it's pretty close. And we've talked to this point many times with each other so yeah. i understand what you're saying but i'm just going to give it one more attempt so a completely relaxed eye is almost like pretend you're in in class in college or <laughs> high school or whatever and you're looking at the the chalkboard and the teacher but you just you start looking inside your own head instead you're like zoned out and you can feel your eyes are kind of glazed over and then the teacher calls on you say Chad, are you paying attention? And you're like, snap out of it. And that, well, that little split second. Yeah. yeah. So when you snap out of it, it's kind of what your eyes want to normally do. They want to focus at that reticle. But but if you can internalize, and this is kind of how I think about it, I just start looking inside my head with my eyes open. I relax them so that I'm, I'm imagining that my eye muscles are totally relaxed and I'm kind of just uh, have that glazed over look. That's when I think what you're trying to describe there is yeah. when your eyes aren't focused on anything. And then you can take that diopter setting with your eyes in that in that state and turn it so that so that it you can see it get worse and then get better and then get worse again and then you can kind of hone back and forth on that um, that scale and, and just say okay here is where it's it's comfortable and I guarantee you that'll be way more comfortable probably than what you were the day before yep <laughs> if you're not doing it like that and then so the other thing that uh, a couple military guys that I learned from they they would do something similar but it, I think it's harder 
um, they would put a piece of paper in front of the optic mm-hmm. and you'd, they'd say close your eyes for five seconds and then open them and what will happen is if that if that reticle image is clear as soon as you open them then you're, you're got, you've got a good diopter setting the problem is depending on your, the age of your eyes depending on how hydrated you are and a bunch of other factors like your eye can focus almost instantly on an it's image that's, fast. yeah that's not in focus already so you can you can end up with a, an optical setting that's less than perfect it's still better than nothing like that's the whole point of it is your eyes should be in their relaxed state and the reticle should be clear yep and that's why i i think when i first started learning i heard that method more often oh you should just see it for a split second and it should be perfectly clear well it is a split second later so that means it must be perfectly clear <laughs> like, yeah. and, it, and it wasn't I was getting headaches, double vision, not seeing shots. Things were blurring out. All the things that you described, I have had. I had from you know five years back to about three years ago, and then, oh, epiphany moment. Um, and another thing that I'll give you a quick tip, just as well. And I don't know, you and I both do it now. Um, I take a silver sharpie, and I, if you have a quick focus diopter, one that does not lock, take some dots and put some scribe witness marks with sharpies or frankly if you know you're keeping that optic just make a small razor line i don't and, like that um, idea because your optics can change your eyes can change as you get older i understand that okay. but i'm using multiple witness marks i need okay. a relative reference like a ruler to know where i'm at because what i don't want to have happen is be close so once i find it perfect um, i just take a sharpie and i make three dots on the top the middle is always my target the left and right are kind of my upper lower bounds of where i know it had been working And I'll put a dot on the diopter that matches the middle dot at right up against the very edge, just a dot of the, let's call it the part of the diopter housing you see that disappears. Because if I turn it a quarter of a turn or an eighth of a turn, that Sharpie mark I made on the diopter, the single, will disappear as well. I know I'm not going the right way. Go out and it comes back. Now I can just line it up with the dot that I'm supposed to see, the middle of the three dots on the housing, the internal piece, um, now gives me like a witness mark. It's just like, I don't know, like hash marks on your scope. So how often should you check your diopter setting? I check it every time before I shoot. I I go to the stage, I just pull my cap off, uh, you know, definitely before a match, make sure that my diopter, gosh. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying how often do you scrutinize that you have a proper setting? Like, I know you're saying this is you checking to make sure it hasn't moved, but oh, do you check monthly, annually, biannually? Because your eyes note, can change. I do the same test every every week or three. I mean, really? approximately every week or three. I'll just get behind the scope and just go relaxed eyes and feel like it still feels as crisp as it's ever have. Okay. And I might move it a little bit one way or the other. Still feels crisp. Yep. Still at the same spot. Leave it alone. I do it annually, um, and I check my, my tracking annually just to make sure. I probably feel like... It's pretty quick. I should do it more often. It, it's super easy. To, we can do it anytime we're looking behind the rifle. And yep. I do it at zero frequently just because it's easy to do. I can dry fire a few times and get relaxed. All right, let's touch on so, parallax setting, how to set parallax because we're over an hour right now. Okay. Okay. Um, what is parallax? It's an apparent motion between your reticle and the target you're looking at. Is if the reticle moves, when you move your head in different points on the eye box, left, up, down, right, uh, anywhere other than center, you'll notice that going from position one to position two inside the eye box, the reticle appears to move on target, even though you're not touching the rifle. So key points of checking the parallax include not touching the rifle. So you have to have a perfectly stationary rifle 
move your head up and down without cheek, without putting your cheek on the rifle, and also left and right without putting your cheek on the rifle, so that you can check if the reticle is moving relative to the target, or said another way, if it looks like the target's moving relative to your reticle. I agree that those are the pro- the, the symptoms of improper parallax, but yeah. but I'll say parallax is the difference of the focal point of the light coming into your lens versus where your reticle is on that plane, correct? Yes. Okay. So when you adjust that knob, you're actually moving your... Focal points. Your, yeah, you're moving that plane that your reticle is on forward and back inside the scope, mm-hmm. right? So if you, if you want to kind of simulate this, you can hold your, your finger out in front of you and move your head left and right and see it move left and right with whatever you're pointing at. That's kind of what's happening inside your, your reticle. If, you're, if you're, your reticle is not at the same point where all that light's coming in focus, then it's gonna have some movement depending on where you're placing your cheek on the cheek riser, right? So, yeah. so the people say, get it so that it's in focus uh, and that's good. Some other people say, dial it on the parallax knob until it says the yardage. Oh. <laughs> so you can't do that unless you verified that your parallax knob is calibrated good enough to not have parallax at that setting. Yeah, and, and it hardly ever stays there because of whatever, light conditions or whatever. Yeah, you know, actually, you need I noticed specifically, it. temperature affects that. Yeah. Um, in, my, in my experience, if you have 100 yards, doesn't mean 100 yards if it's 30 degrees versus 90 degrees. Um, it probably has to do with issues inside the scope and like thermal changes. I remember specifically had a scope that I could to focus at 400 yards, I needed to be in infinity in very cold weather. Anything else, I'd have to be like four to 500 yards. If it got to like 80, 90 degrees, it was almost perfect on the little dial. So that's a big change on this particular scope, not not the loophole, different one. It was It's a like half a revolution different. Mm. So wow. the numbers changed dramatically. With, if the scope was physically very cold, like we're talking 10, 20, 30 degrees versus 60, 70, 80 degrees, or in a specifically, if I went from my house at 60 out to the cold and then back up and it got cold enough to where the ambient temperature of the scope and the optic were, or the air and the optic were the same, it all seemed to go away and it would start to act normal again. It wouldn't dial any different, but I could have, was a very different parallax setting, noticeably different. You were commenting way earlier in this episode about how you fielded calls lately and, and said, you know, Every all your settings are properly uh, set in your Kestrel or your ballistic solver. You, the only really reason it could be off now is your chronos broke, your scopes broke, or something's loose. And I think it comes back to that fact that the other thing is that is very true and very real and happens very often is that people don't scrutinize their parallax. And the parallax is much more sensitive at a hundred yards than it is at a thousand yards, right? Yes. So yeah. if if you don't have proper parallax, and it's going to result in a zero that is not precise on yeah. your point of aim you can lay down and lay down a super tight group without moving your head but it could be you could have parallax every and time you your get up and be, down behind the rifle you're going to create a new parallax condition slightly and yeah. you could be off a tenth in either direction easily a tenth in any direction easily. so i yeah. think a lot of those when those ballistic solvers give you data and it doesn't line up think it does come down to i think the first thing i think of is parallax like yeah do you have the parallax set properly for the yardage you're trying to to prove out or tune or you know true up to but even as important or more important is was your parallax set perfectly when you did your zero and what's your zero and i've asked people before like 
what is um, how, how did your zero look you're, you're trying to true up your Kestrel how did your zero look and they said oh I didn't shoot zero today well why in the hell not <laughs> shoot your zero and make sure it's perfect and then go run out your data those are the two things that matter that those yeah. that your environmentals and your speed like what else is. is there well I also want to add that there's a shooting your zero and making sure it's perfect are one thing tracking your zero and zero offsets over multiple days is equally if not more important in my view because it's one thing to lay down on a condition that like on a bench that you're not used to shooting on and saying you're not used to shooting on and going yeah it's perfect but if if you normally know that you're let's say low and left half a tenth and a tenth tenth low and a half a tenth left Mm -hmm. and you lay down at a range and you you smoke the exact point of aim you're aiming at you're like perfect no my zero is perfect right it just went through exactly the quarter inch dot that i had i put five rounds inside of a 0.243 hole it printed a perfect zero for five ten rounds straight hell a hundred rounds straight but yet you know that every other time you've shot for the last five weeks you've been one tenth low and one tenth or half a tenth left something's going on (laughs) it doesn't matter how good your zero is at your point of aim if you know that 99 times out of 10 or out of 100, you are low and left by X amount, and then you go to a match and you're hitting the bullseye, that just means you're probably going to end up high right in the match if you were if you were normally pretty good at being centered. Yeah, I get it. I, and I think people miss that sometimes. They think zero just means hitting what you want. No, zero just means that you know where the bullets are going to land relative to where you're aiming, in my opinion, and then you can put offsets in to accommodate that. So I wanted to make sure that was touched on because this is a major point. And all of the things we've talked about in this episode, specifically optics, clarity, quality, parallax, um, your ability to have a repeatable dial, repeatable reticle with a reticle that's not obscuring details downrange, all affect how well you true and how well you see what happens downrange, i.e. they're affecting your next shot. So... This is, a, this is a lot longer episode than I thought. I thought it was going to be a little bit shorter, just because I'm like, oh yeah, optics. But we optics actually are important. Touched on some really good points. So I think the takeaways for me on this, this has been one of the most uh, long learning topics that I've had. It took me a long, long time to learn all of these details. I still don't feel like I know them all. I just know enough about them to not make them a negative. But I've learned the important ones. You know, must know how your optic tracks. That's probably the most important thing you must know it tracks and tracks consistently you also need to know how your reticle works and the subtensions within your reticle cold if you close your eyes you should be able to count off which line means what and see a picture of it in your mind's eye you have to be able to set your both your parallax and your diopter and they are interlinked then one can't be set without the other being perfect and then lastly see rule number one know your optic right um, and make sure you know it tracks because that affects your data and if you're making hard choices and saying, I'm excluding my optic from being wrong, it's got to be right. Because you can, you're assuming that it's right, and it must be my solver, or it must be this thing, and you're changing things to get there, when in fact, you haven't confirmed that your optic is doing what you said it was going to do, or it's not, it's not working now. Um, man, you're, you're really, you're really going to find a lot of challenges. Challenges truing in solvers without verifying that those things both were true that it was tracking true and that it is still tracking true that's last part's important yeah i true a lot less these days 
Yeah. <laughs> because but we don't have issues on in a matches either. Right. So no, I know there's there's no reason to if you if you know that all all your variables and everything about your equipment does what what it's supposed to do, then it's just maintenance at that point. So yeah, and if I guarantee you, well, a good example, and then we'll bump off this and wrap it up. At Michigan, I had a stage that I caused unexplained misses that. I literally went, I don't understand how those could have been low. You guys thought they looked low. First thing I did was I did a tracking test at 100 yards really quickly during a match. I shot at a zero. I dialed up, I think I could see six mils. So I dialed up six mils, shot, and then measured between the top of those six mil holes on a 100-yard backer board um, just so I could make sure that what I dialed and what I shot, they matched the right amount. And they did. I'm like, I don't know what to say. It's it's tracking as close as I can humanly shoot it right now, knowing this distance, that yardage. Um, I didn't know what caused those misses. We didn't really see them. We weren't really sure. And so I had to quickly confirm that nothing had gone wrong. So then you went and won the match the next day. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. But it, it wasn't the scope. <laughs> no, it's not the scope. It's check the check the Indian more often than the arrow, but also make sure your arrows are true. Not missing fletchings. <laughs> All right. And with that, we will leave you guys. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> See you guys. See you.